Hello everybody and welcome to season five of the Jocks Cast. It's uh, coming live from Milton Keynes, City of the Future, and it's with Malcolm Sparks, Jeremy Taylor, and Alex Davis. Hi Jeremy, say hello. Hey, um, yeah, I'm uh, Jeremy, I look after XTDB. Hey Alex. Hello, I'm Alex and I don't look after much. I, I look after the hiring board. Brilliant. All so. right, well, we've introduced ourselves. No, why we, no, you've got a connection with Milton Keynes, haven't you, Jeremy? Oh, it's, uh, it's where I'm from. This is my hometown. I was born about a mile up, up the road from here, where I'm stood. Um, don't live here currently, but uh, I do have a lot of fondness for the city. Yeah. I well, mean, for those of you who don't know, Milton Keynes is a city that was started about the 1970s, and it's a very futuristic city. It's all kind of modeled in a very progressive way with underpasses and redways and cycle lanes it's a very kind of um design city would you say what was it like growing up here well i always thought it was strange that the rest of the country wasn't filled with roundabouts and broad sidewalks or, or streets so uh, I, I feel like going to any other town in the uk is a bit more sort of cramped and i feel quite felt like it was at home so no, this this is this is definitely uh, uh, a place where i feel very sort of free and you can cycle around and it's safe and pleasant and lots of trees it's one of the leafiest cities in the in the uk yeah it's a nice place to live but i i've learned that if i go internationally i people don't know what milton Keynes is or some people have heard of it but not everybody so i like to say well actually it's um where do you come from i come from bletchley park because people do know where that's from thankfully because of some hollywood movies around <laughs> alan turing and uh, it is cool and the enigma machine and the, the code breakers and all that story. So it sounds, it's more cool from a tech point of view saying you're from Bletchley Park. That's kind of the home of the computer. So that's what I say. Well, I was at a hotel just uh, last night um, and they've got it all themed with uh, Red Bull Racing. So that's another big brand name based here. Oh yeah, Red Bull. Red okay, Bull. so yeah, how, how would you imagine you'd get all that money from a sugar drink, but they did. <laughs> Kudos. Yeah. Um, so, Alex, we've just come back from the Closure Conge. Yeah, yeah, and uh, very smooth travel this time around. Not, not like Strange Loop, where there is no direct flight to St. Louis from, from London, but there is to Durham in North Carolina, yeah. so much direct, smoother. Direct flights from Bletchley Park every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite. What was your favourite talk? Um, I, I mean, might be cliche to say this, but Rich Hickey's talk was... Was, it, it was good to see Rich Hickey speak, having sort of watched a whole bunch of videos and sort of, you know, uh, sort of this moment of, oh, wow, it's this person in real life that I've seen talked about on the internet and watched videos and, and seeing him live was, was pretty cool. Um, I think most, the, the talk before him um, by Sam, what is his last name? Richie. Sam, Sam Ritchie, Richie. that's the one. Um, that was also really good. Um, lots of cool graphics and uh, awesome demo there. Um, yeah, lots of good talks. Jeremy, your favorite talks? Uh, so the opening talk was um, on vector symbolic architectures, which is um, sort of a lofty AI uh, research area where um, the, I can't remember the speaker's name, but she she had, Karen, uh, Karen Meyer. That's right, Karen. Yeah, she, she had uh, uh, been experimenting with this this vector representation um, of doing symbolic AI, but using Clojure, and then this sort of fast uh, Apache Arrow-based um, processing system. Um, so yeah, a really interesting talk. And um, 
it, it sort of paints this alternative view. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about ChatGPT later, but this alternative view on the AI ecosystem and, and the opportunity to uh, yeah, do, do some relevant cutting edge experimentation from Clojure, which I think is like a fascinating thing to think that you know we have this very high performance tool at our fingertips. Wow. Uh, my favorite was, I think, the, well, I mean, one I went to was um, uh, Eric Dallow's on Clojure LSP, which is really about how you do Clojure at scale. I mean, New Bank have got 1,800 engineers and how you get everybody working in the same Clojure code bases with that number of people it just shows the, the sorts of things that you can do with Clojure LSP to help you scale. Which I thought that was really interesting. I mean, we're not that big yet, but we're, you know, juxta. Well, it sounds like they have thousands of microservices, so it's probably you know, basically one person to a service. Oh. Talking of microservices, we've got the recent news, news um, uh, that Amazon, uh, you know, doing the, you know, hot on Twitter and hacking news, that, that Amazon Prime that, you know, used for one of their microservices or one of their functions have moved, kind of begun to move away from microservices and back to monoliths, which has ushered a kind of whole mm. load of, people commenting on, you know, the whole thing. And I've, I've done a few tweets in this direction around um, the difference between microservices and monoliths. And, you know, people are beginning to question the received wisdom that, you know, microservices are all good and monoliths are, are bad. And sometimes the, the answers well, are a little bit more complex. Was it microservices? I thought it was just serverless. I don't know where the line between microservices and serverless is, but what I read was that they had a bunch of Lambda functions that would be spun up all the time and they just moved it to a monolith. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think that, I, I mean, my, my comment on that was really about, um, I, I think that the, uh, there is some problem with the um, tendency to break everything up and put it on the back of a network call. And there was kind of something I was reading about, you know, the, the thing that monoliths have that other architectures don't is that they have L1 caches and really, really fast, you know, they have very, very low latent access to their data and all that stuff. Whereas, whereas microservices, uh, you're talking about JSON, encoding, security, access tokens, JWT, you know, just to do a single call. It, it is interesting watching people spend quite a lot of time and, uh, in, in trying to move everything to the edge, including like, databases because you move some function to the edge and then you go oh wow this function's really fast but it has to go off to some database which isn't at the edge and then oh we have to move that to the edge and then when everything gets to the edge then you have to worry about what if two people at different edges want to share information and then you have all of these other problems and uh, at some point I, I i kind of feel like just taking the trip once to wherever the central services and then having all of those little hops be done locally or in the same region might be better than trying to split everything out into the edge to save 100 milliseconds of time <laughs> well t time is the big the big thing and um, i'm not going to talk about temporal databases in this context but the the uh, the latency involved in doing any kind of fetching over a network is going to be the, the killer in the future that as computers continue to evolve get more and more parallelism it's the latency in the network hops which is uh, going to dominate um, performance so wherever you can minimize that you should and um, I think databases have shown us uh, ways of, of thinking about this in the past. And um, you know, the original vision for databases was uh, Ted Codd's paper about a relational model for large shared data banks. And it's about how do you communicate data 
without having to introduce loads of joins over networks. You, mm. you want to just join, do the join in one place and share access to data. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting term, shared data bank. You know, that does imply having a, you know, a bank does, does imply that it's all in one place. It's all together so that you can join across it. You're not having to navigate and find state in pipes and, you know, across links and in, you know, in different databases. Well, I think with you know closure, we 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 very much appreciate. It. You don't want to hide state, you know, between objects. Um, it's much better to shove lots of state in a, in a map and you know, have one place where you can do transformations on it. Um, so I think it's the same philosophy just applied over the network. Yeah, I, I mean, this is my my kind of main concern about um, architecture is that you know it's information technology, not just technology. We, you know, it is about information, and where we get our information is in databases. So if you're building any service that needs to get information uh, and you have to go to a service to get it by the time it arrives at your service it's already out of date it could be out of date it could be stale and then you're making decisions based on out of date data all the time and this is very different from how uh, and i we were talking about consistency um, i was we were in copenhagen not so long ago and i was having a conversation with martin clausen who's who's and the reason i i, I wanted to speak to him is because he's got a background in ibm mainframes so i, I know jeremy you're from from IBM originally, and you, you probably know more about this topic than I do. But I, I did ask him: Is it true that the the IBM the, the mainframe model, as I you know, as I, I you see it in the black and white photos, is really about a single stream of functions that are being queued up? Uh, their jobs they were called jobs, and they had job control language. But it's a simply you know there is a stack of punch cards and punch cards have to go in order you can't kind of there's only one place in the mainframe to slot them in and they have to go into a particular order and when a punch card program is running in a mainframe it accesses state which is on these kind of tapes or you know in these films moving going round and round and round but it is the latest or at least you think it's the latest version of state and then the next job comes along and says what is the you know the balance of this account and it goes around and around, around oh it's 42 and then it will add some numbers so when ibm moved to a multi-processor environment with multiple cores and cpus they had to recreate this transactional queue linear system and the way they did that is through inventing this notion of transactions that, that was because that was just reflected the way that computers had operated up until that point um, and that was interesting i'd asked him is this really where transactions come from this kind of the the idea of just having paper cards and in one order uh, and i think he said he, he said yes that's exactly what you know th that's the sort of quality of service quality of data processing we're trying to approach we've lost that because now we're processing on data that's stale um we need you know that this is again kind of talks to the um we're over at copenhagen giving a talk on atomic architecture but one of the principles of atomic architecture is that you process data in a consistent way data consistency is brought back to the heart of the processing system i i think the biggest tension that is seen in the modern era as people wanting to do things, uh, Alex's word, at the edge. Uh, people want to, to have the app be as fast as possible from different regions around the world and avoid these global uh, round trip times. Um, so, yeah, back in the 70s, it was fine to have you know mainframe in different parts of the country servicing different users potentially, or, or the, you know, the latency was acceptable. It didn't, didn't matter if it took five seconds to book an airline ticket. Um, that was fine, mm. whereas now you know, people expect sub sub second uh, responses regardless of where the server is they don't care they just want it to be fast so you can't really have both things at once you have to give 
somewhere. You have to sacrifice consistency if you want um, fast responses. Yeah, and also often there are more and more uh, apps that are real time and the people that want to collaborate with each other in real time are in the same region. And if you run your, I don't know, live editing, Notion, Google Sheets, whatever it is, service out of a single data center in the UK and there's a team in Australia that want to use your tool, then each time that they edit something, they're going to have to be a round trip from Australia to the UK and back for them to see each other's edits. And that is actually going to be pretty significant latency for seeing someone's cursor or text move move around. Um, so I think sometimes you do have to sort of lose that simplistic model of having a central source where everything happens in order because of scale or, or geographic distance. But not always. Like the, the cases where you do actually need it is not as many as the cases where people seem to be moving to it. Like there are a lot of people moving, you know, their very simple, you know, Twitter type apps or whatever to some horrendously complicated distributed network when they only have 50 users. And yeah, that, that, that is the problem, I think. I, I was reading some um, analysis the other day about the, the growth of different database workloads and, you know, who's doing well in the cloud and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, the analysis said that um, single writer systems are, are growing much faster than multi-writer systems. So you know, even though Spanner and CockroachDB and these other systems have some very clever technology, uh, it's still not fast enough and general enough and cheap enough to really compete with just you know sticking up a, a spinning up another RDS server in a particular region. Um, so that's that's you know that's what the, uh, the industry seems to be preferring is is live with the constraints of having high latency across certain regions, maybe sacrifice some consistency, but the the, uh, the the throughput you get and the simplicity in the architecture you get from having a, a centralized database in one region uh, is, is pre preferable. Yeah, I think you know, mentioned that magic word simplicity, and I, I think it is definitely true that consistent systems are easier to reason about because you, ha you when you when you process against stale data, then you have all kinds of race conditions. Which one got there first? Physics comes into play. So to bring back simplicity means bringing back consistency as a default now i completely understand alex's point of view that that sometimes that that default doesn't work for your use case and you have to break that default but i'm saying that should be the default and then you should have a very very good reason and it should be a good business reason or a user reason to to trade off consistency otherwise you should keep it i guess what you the problem is what you see is or you read stories where people start some uh app like twitter is a good example actually because twitter was started as a ruby on rails thing it was very much like a let's just do this simply and not think about performance or scale and let's just like get this thing working and then it exploded in popularity you had you know massive events like the world cup and whatever and twitter was going down all the time and then they needed to spend like a huge amount of time and effort and money in making it scale web scale or you know whatever whatever and now you get people uh, being afraid of that and when they're launching their business or they're starting their project they're going oh well we can't just use this because it won't scale and it's not you know going to going to scale to billions of users which is where we want to be and even though none of them actually ever end up getting to that point they want to be sure that their service and their infrastructure can handle it if it does happen unexpectedly and i kind of i do get that point of view i just think that they, you know, you have to have like realistic expectations. And sometimes it is better to go the simple route and then have to scramble about the scale 
um, than it is spending a year in development hell not releasing anything because you started off with like this crazy infrastructure. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, you mentioned the World Cup. I mean, with football, people think because the Premiership and the World Cup are the popular football events, that is football. But that's that's just the top one, you know, zero point zero one percent. And and I think we have the same delusion or selective bias when it comes to systems because we hear about you know the problems at Twitter and GitHub and you know, we say oh we can't use Rails but in fact the huge vast majority of systems that run everyday processes in everyday companies the vast majority of them have got nowhere near the scalability problems and requirements of these incredibly successful uh, companies and so there's an enormous selection bias going on um, and that we should actually uh, the fashions that drive technical technical architectures uh, are driven by the selection bias which is a great shame because it means that a lot of companies are like wo- woefully underserved trying to build ferraris when they really want to be building volvos yeah well i, I think part of the trouble is that the the, the trend is towards more and more sort of agile iterative development and so everyone's terrified of actual capacity planning like you know, trying to estimate usage growth and, and predict um like people seem to be less interested in that spending less time on that um and quite rightly because you know it's a bit of a chore but i think if you if you can you know do some back of the envelope calculations and and you know manage those margins for error and, and you know routinely check the the logs to check you're not sort of at too high CPU percentage, you know, you, you can provision and scale accordingly, and then figure out at what point do you need to really start thinking about scale. But people are people are wanting the easy answers too quickly. And there are always other. Uh, we talk about Ruby on Rails. Uh, GitHub to this day, I believe, is still running on Ruby on Rails. And so there are other options of scaling technologies that are available to you, which you may may not. No, in advance. Yeah, they have been going down quite a lot recently, though. So I would yeah, not know if I'd mentioned so, that yeah, one. <laughs> wrong week to make that comment. Anyway, moving on. So uh, what else has been happening in the news? Um, well, as uh, you know, the, uh, um, I wouldn't be right to not without mention the, the wave of new AI news that has been kind of we've been deluged with uh, every day since early January, I think. We, you know, what's, so what's been going on? You've been playing around with AI, haven't you? Yeah, I've, I mean, I think there are some really good use cases for it. I think, you know, it, it's gotten a lot of hype. It's gotten a lot of, you know, people talking about, oh, will it replace all our jobs and blah, 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 blah. And I, uh, you know, I think it's like, it is a big step forwards technologically. Um, I don't know how comparable it is to something like the production line or like the, you know, industrial revolution type of thing. It's probably not going to be that big but it is like a big step forward in technology and it's a an emerging tool that will probably replace some amount of jobs in the future but as with all technological advances they're inevitable you can't you know say oh let's not let's not do them let's hide all of our data from the ai because you know it's, it's too late for that but at the moment it is still quite far off of replacing any um you know, anyone's job that requires, you know, some level of experience and knowledge, because every time I talk to ChatGPT, it seems like it knows a lot. And until you actually know quite a lot on the subject, and then you realize that it really doesn't know that much at all, because it doesn't know anything, because it's just like making stuff up. And a lot of the time it makes stuff up that's correct. And a lot of the time it makes stuff up that's wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I think it has some use cases, I think, especially around um, boilerplate things that are like sort of 
you know, these email chains, which are, are kind of uh, just the done thing, but don't actually serve any real use. And you just have to type a load of, you know, waffle. It's good at waffling. Um, I think it's quite good at changing the tone of something while keeping the original intention. So if if you leave comments on someone's PR and, and you just don't want to spend time thinking about how to make this friendly, it can it can friendlyize <laughs> unfriendly comments, uh, which which is useful. And I think Copilot is genuinely a useful tool. Um, messes up the brackets enclosure, so I have switched to par infer but the fact that i've switched to par infer which i don't prefer over par edit just because copilot works better with it i think shows how useful i do find the autocomplete well i i think uh, you you're the expert around the table perhaps on on actually using it for highly productive activities uh, like like coding i haven't tried copilot or anything like that but uh, i i did you know ask it to write some data log and it failed um <laughs> So, so uh, oh, I also haven't tried the the latest Chat GPT version, so mm. maybe I'm uh, out of date. Well, but I, I, I do, I do think it. I, I agree, it's sort of a very um, promising thing that will be inevitable in some degree. But I am at least reassured. I think that I, I don't, I'm not expecting like a, a runaway, self-improving AI coming out of this particular vein of research. I think what we're looking up something something that's disruptive to industry rather than humanity in the yeah it's it's still very expensive to train these models right you need a huge amount of computing power um you can't sort of do it quickly in real time there are sort of models that run on people's devices but they're still not very good compared to what chat gpt i i mean the like gpt models that OpenAI have are massive and they require like seriously expensive bits of hardware to produce those things so eventually that will come down but i i think it's it's going to be some time um yeah i think that um there is definitely like good real world use cases for it right now um and i think copilot and dali and uh, stable diffusion and all these things like they are actually being used um i think there are places where it's used where it shouldn't be used yet or or it's just like it's not making things better like all of the new the lazy news articles or you know blogs that get generated but then that was happening before anyway um and may maybe this will pump out enough of them that people start uh getting fed up of it and and demanding that people spend effort on their news articles maybe <laughs> yeah I mean, my take is that i think it is very significant um but it's significant um at the surface uh, where people are well, we, we deal about we're talking about technical infrastructure um there's a great lyric by the pretenders, Chrissy Hines, which is always on my mind. It's, it's, um, some things change and some stay the same. Some things stay the same. And infrastructure changes very, very slowly. You know, stuff that runs banks and hospitals and stuff, it's just ingrained. And then as you go up the layers of sediment, you get to stuff which, you know, we work on and programs and things that change. And then, you know, you've got operating systems and things that, you know, AI is not going to have a a huge dramatic effect on things that are buried deep in infrastructure but it will have an effect on um i think the user interfaces to infrastructure so i think chat is a very important interface um, we spend a lot of time the user interface is very primitive between humans and computers it's often form-based frustration trying to thumb your way into 
paying for a car park or something on a phone or you know it's it's very primitive and i think ai is going to have a huge impact on the human computer interface just because it does an you know a fantastic job of pretending to be a human so that's where it will have an impact but i do think this you know i i take from this that there is a latent potential with having very good uh uh ai in in terms of being able to uh run transactions or, or, or call into existing infrastructure through APIs. So I, I think there will be a, a great disruption in the way that things are done, how humans deal with society, booking car parks and hospital appointments and booking restaurants. That will have uh, will be impacted. But I think it, it's, it's the same, um, same things we've been saying for a long time, that in an internet-connected world, um, that we, we know... The web has opened up this potential for companies to do transactions between each other, and in a you know much more, um, much more significant way than other approaches based on EDI and XML and, and so on. We know that the API idea is here to stay, and it will drive more and more of the economy. But where I think it's it's really important is that to date most APIs have been very private. You'd have mobile apps talking to the you know owned by a company. Um, and you know, if you, you do something, Airbnb will will have a, an app, and their the Airbnb will talk to the the private Airbnb API. But more and more companies, and not I'm not talking about just the top 0.1% Premier Football teams. It will be, you know, everyday companies will have to produce secure APIs that are public and that can be exposed to the world of the bots. Otherwise, they will miss out on all of the innovation that's coming downstream. So I do predict a. Um, a you know, a, um, a, a renaissance in kind of API development and API and, and companies really considering the API to be as important as their existing user interfaces. Yeah, I think like there's no way that this whole AI topic would have got anywhere near as much attention if OpenAI hadn't released an API. If they'd have just released ChatGPT and locked it behind this sort of interface and you can talk to something, it would have got a lot of attention. It's still a very impressive tool. But the API has really allowed a bunch of other companies very quickly to integrate with it. So Notion has a GPT-powered thing where it can like write some documents for you. Um, there's a similar thing with like Grammarly where it can you know change the tone or, or add bits to what you're writing. There's obviously all of the Copilot stuff. GitHub has actually released um, like a CLI tool now that you can just type question mark question mark. Uh, you know cut the last 20 seconds out of this video and it will write the FFmpeg thing in, in the shell for you. And there's a whole bunch of other like uh, things that people have just come up with to integrate with it using the API. And I think that it's always been surprising to me how many people really spend all this time on a product. I, I think Notion's another good example because when they came out, they didn't have an, an API and they had this tool where you put your, you know, your documents in and it's not just documents, they have databases and you can put stuff in uh, with tables, uh, but you're locked into using their front end, which isn't always like what you want. Sometimes you want to automate it. And so people had to like reverse engineer their API and there's all these like GitHub projects for, you know, Python and Go and JavaScript where they, someone's 
figured out Notion's private API and sort of reverse engineered it. And these things got like thousands and thousands of stars on GitHub and used all over the place. And then eventually Notion started releasing. So almost reverse engineering Notions. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, you know, you don't want to rely on a private API, right? Because Notion can change it whenever they want. They can break it. And that, I guess, is why they didn't do it in the first place, because having a public API is a lot of work to maintain and document and all of that sort of thing. But I still think that it is an important um, an important thing to have in this day and age. And I think that uh, it's something that the t people who make tools and, you know, um, open source software that makes putting together an API, documenting it, um, having all of this process around it as easy as possible is going to be really important. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I mean, it's one thing to have a conversation with a chat GPT um, explaining your kind of symptoms to to it and for it to guess what you're you know maybe you're having a heart attack but the ability for it to say i, I think you're having a heart attack would you like me to I, I booked you an ambulance and an ambulance is on its way that's when it gets real that's when it becomes a really useful tool so i, I think at the moment we're just seeing the beginnings of it you know we're playing around with the interface and uh, but it's when it actually the rubber hits the road when the the AI can talk to meat space and infrastructure, um, and this is of course the the you know the big dystopian fear that uh, we will attach an AI to uh, uh, you know an artificial general intelligence to infrastructure. But I, you know it it must happen and it will happen, and I don't want to get into the ethics and the safety of it. Only to say that um, it will be all Microsoft's fault if. <laughs> Okay, yeah. moving on. Toy of the week, our, our much forgotten section that we had in the podcast, I think in season one. Um, this week's toy of the week. Well, okay, yeah, we have got a toy of the week, but I just like to point yeah. out. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that toy of the week was part of a running joke where we had something of the week and we would only do it once. And now you've ruined it by having a second toy of the week. Oh, season five, we can change the rules. Okay. Have, I'm sure we've got... <laughs> New toys that coming. I mean, we we we've so we've got an owl. We've got an owl. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's this this camera that's uh, split. Well, it's the one the thing that you can't see on the video. Yeah. By definition. Yeah. You need a mirror. Um, but actually, Jeremy's disappeared from it. It's because it's because you're not speaking. I guess you have to. Okay. Testing. Oh, there we go. So, yeah, so when someone speaks, it, I guess it has some directional microphone and it has a 360 camera and it will put people in. It's, it's really just because we have this big table in, in our uh, meeting room and we had like a few webcams that we tried, wide angle ones on top of the TV. And they're either really low quality, but fit everyone in, or they're like way too zoomed in. Or, you know, we tried that one that sort of has a little motor and it moves around, but then it's just annoying and it's distracting for everyone. So this 360 one in the middle that has um, a speaker in it and um, follows everyone is a pretty good toy. I mean, I, I think it's quite, it's quite expensive as, as far as webcams go, but um, yeah. Um, once you get into all the Zoom room stuff, you can you can spend basically. We recommend it. We, we've, we're happy with it. I think I think we're happy with it. Yeah, we need to sort out the echo in this room, and then we can we don't have to have these microphones. But uh, yeah, I think I think we're happy with I it. I mean, this table is the, the famous table from season one, and we had it in our old <laughs> office. And I will maybe post up to to a, a kind of a YouTube um, channel all the photos of the 
moving the table moving the table in the videos because that was some yeah. project and it only just fit into this new office by you know we were just millimeters inside the tolerance yeah. of it all but what definition it, of the word famous were you going for there famous <laughs> table well i mean yeah okay well, moving on to the next topic i think engineering wardrobe i think there's the next section this is what the hell are you wearing alex and Oh, right. We're going to talk about developers' clothing choices, aren't yes. we? Yeah, new section. Well, I exclusively wear um, clothing provided to me for free at conferences now. So what, what are you wearing this today? Is, this is my Strange Loop t-shirt that I got at the Strange Loop conference. Very, yeah. very good. Which, which I'd recommend. It was a fun conference. Jeremy isn't wearing any branded gear. No, no, I try and stay neutral so that I'm corporate friendly. <laughs> and uh, this is actually the first time I'm wearing this top, so just very good. Very nice. size. Yeah, I'm wearing the, the official safari top. When you do a safari, so a safari, you're, I think we've got a few of the YouTube channels, you'll see some safaris. So these are internal tech events that we do where we talk about some tech topic. And if you do bit one or two. I think, I think you have to do three safaris to get the hoodie. And then you get a hoodie. And that's why we have the, the lambda with the flash. With the tiger, the tiger stroke. Yeah, no, I think it's a great piece of Jack's merchandise. We should we should make the Jack shop. Um, people can can buy our clothing, and then we can we can always pivot once AI takes over from doing the software for us. Very good. Okay, coming up, the ten Jack's is ten years old. Oh, is ten years old already? We're having a party in uh, two weeks' time, which is probably about the time with this podcast will go out. So we're looking forward to the party, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a uh, it's. Party came about partly because it's 10 years, but also because we put a lot of work into um, a conference that was going to be held in mid-2020. Obviously, certain viruses had uh, something to say about that, and it was cancelled. And so we thought we could reuse some of that work, some of the songs and uh, skits that we put together. Um, and we're going to put that on in the same venue that we had planned, which is Wilton's Music Hall in London. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, so yeah, and if and you know, it is invite only. But if you're listening to this, um, and if we put it out well, just before, and you really want a golden ticket, then get in touch. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll film it as well, right? And we'll we'll probably have some YouTube videos out of it, and uh, some some talks that we're going to do. So the during the day, there's always a tech conference, internal yeah. tech conference at the event, and a party, skits, dances. Yeah songs but the, but the talks really are like they're not even for the audience we're doing them mainly to film them and then put them on the internet so everyone yeah. can see them so yeah check our youtube channel if you haven't already and uh, maybe some of those will be on there already and it's the the live uh performance of alex's song which is already on youtube uh yeah yeah i um wrote a song about text editors that were made before i was born so holy war <laughs> All right. I mean, anything to wrap up with, Jeremy? Closing thoughts? Well, I mean, the party's going to be awesome. Um, yeah, I've got a talk, talk in, in progress for that. The working title is uh, Update Considered Harmful. But then I was on Hacker News yesterday and I saw people saying oh, the word, the expression considered harmful is, is harmful itself. So um, maybe I'll have to rethink that. We'll see. No, I like tropes and memes and idioms. I, I think it's a good talk. Anyway, uh, thank you everybody for listening that was a kind of a trial episode that we've done hopefully we'll do some more every friday but um anyway we'll close off i'm malcolm sparks alex davis jeremy taylor 
listening. Goodbye.